You're listening to the podcast of Anthem Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, visit us online at anthemcolumbia.com. This time of year is a, is a, is a fun time of year. It's a, it's a good time of year for evaluation. People's hearts are usually open to thinking through bigger things. And I had the privilege of preaching last year um, at the same time of year. Um, and so what I want to start out with is just kind of asking the question, what do you want most out of life? This is the time, time of year people think about stuff like that, right? They look back on the year and be like, where was I last year at this time? And what did I hope would be true? Fast forwarding, and now it's real life. Now it's New Year's Eve again. And what did you wish was true last year? <clears throat> and what do you want most out of life? What are you really hoping for out of the new year? You can set goals for yourself, set uh, resolutions. You know, you want to get married, you want to have kids, want more money, success, uh, want more Facebook likes. I don't know if that's a thing still, but like, <laughs> but you post stuff and then you want people to at least like, like it so that you know that they read it, I guess. <laughs> like, liking doesn't mean anything anymore. It's just like letting the person know that you saw it. <laughs> so my idea is that they should charge for likes. You should, it should have a PayPal account and it should cost you five cents to like something. And then that way you would know if people actually liked it or if they're just doing it just to do it. I don't know, that's just my idea, but whatever. Um, so what do you want most out of life? Peace and quiet? Sometimes on Sunday morning, that's what I want. <laughs> just trying to get ready for church, I'm like, oh my word, if I could just get to church without having sinned so much <laughs> this morning and getting everybody out the door. Um, maybe you're just looking forward to retirement. Like maybe this is the year I finally just am done with all the stuff and just retire and be done, go live on an island with Mai Tais and sunshine. What do you want most out of life is a question that we think about, particularly this time of year. But let me ask you another question. What do you want most out of death? Have you ever thought about that question? What do you want most out of death? It's a weird question, right? Have you ever even heard somebody ask that? It's a weird opener. I I recommend it if you meet a stranger and just really creep people out. It's like, are you about to murder me? (laughs) What do you want most out of death? Because you're about to be dead. Um, But what do you want most out of death? Malachi, we're in the book of Malachi for those of you who are... um, studying with us, who've been with us. If you're not, that's what we do here at Anthem. We go through books of the Bible. So you can turn to Malachi. It's the last book of the Old Testament. So if you find Matthew, just flip back to your left. That's where we're going to be today. We're going to finish out the book. But the people who Malachi wrote this letter to have been dead for 2,500 years. They've been dead longer than they lived. So what they wanted most out of death is a far more important question than what they wanted out of life. Because their lives are over. They heard these words, Malachi wrote them down. Malachi has been dead for 2,500 years. He spent more time dead than he has alive. So what you want most out of death is a good question because you will spend a lot of time there. And the two are connected. And that's going to be our big idea this morning. And Malachi wants to draw that out. The way that you are living is leading you somewhere. Your current life, what you're living for, will determine what you get out of death. Your life is leading you somewhere. It's all going somewhere. It's all ending someplace. And Malachi wants with his last word, it's his last word um, to us in his book. We'll finish out his book today. But it's also God's last word to his people for 400 years. This is the mic drop of the Old Testament. This is, put that in your pipe and smoke it. (laughs) For 400 years, I want you to stew on this. So this is a big deal. And so it, it comes off kind of strong. 
But if you had last words and you knew that it was the last chance you got, the last window you had to say something to somebody, and you needed them really to consider the weight of what you're saying, you come through strong. And so Malachi really has two goals in his last section here and wanting you to consider how your life is leading you somewhere. The first one is to warn those who are living for something other than God. what his goals are for today. Warn those who are not living for God. Encourage those who are, because it's really hard. So if you're on your Bibles, Malachi 3, we'll start in verse 13, and we'll do 13, 14, and 15. God says, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, How have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge, or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and escape. So in the text, we're going to see the first section is showing signs. He's wanting to point out, here's some signs that you might not be living for God. You might not be living for him if your lives look like this. And, and the first thing that happens here is he, God says, your words have been hard against me. And if you've been with us, their response is to be like, how? And have you noticed in this entire book, not at one point, not once, does anybody ever say, I'm sorry? Not once. Not in this whole book does God say, you're doing this wrong. And they go, you're right. I'm probably wrong. You're God. I'm sorry. Not once in the whole book does anybody ever say sorry. Every single stinking time it's some comeback. <laughs> it's some self-justification. Every time. Every time God says something hard to him. And he doesn't say it as a question the way like, the way that I will like talk to my kids, they'd be like, do you think you should be talking to your sister like that? Now, obviously, I'm not really asking Atticus a question. <laughs> I'm telling him, stop talking to your sister like that. God isn't even doing that. He's saying, your words have been hard, period. That's just a, a sentence. I'm just saying what's true. And their response is to be like, that doesn't sound like me. <laughs> like, I don't know who you're talking to, but that's what somebody, I, I'm glad so-and-so's at church today. It's, I hope they're hearing this. <laughs> Because they do, do, they do stuff like that. But not me. You're clearly not talking to me. Not once in this entire book does somebody just say sorry. And that is a sign that you are not living for God. Do you regularly say you're sorry to anybody? Are you ever wrong about anything? Just in your conversations, do you say sorry very often to people? Do you take responsibility for what you've done wrong? Do you read the Bible and agree with God and say, if you say it, it is true. And if one of us is wrong, it's probably me. I'm going to roll with the guy who made me on this. <laughs> I'm just going to give him the benefit of the doubt that he knows what he's talking about. And I'm going to, the biblical word for saying I'm sorry is repent, which literally means change your mind. It's agree with God. Agree with him. If he says it, just agree with him. Stop trying to justify yourself like these people do every time they come back with some kind of excuse. Is that the cadence of your life? the way that you deal with people. When somebody comes at you and says like, hey, I want to talk to you, you did this, it hurt me. Is your first response is to justify why you did the thing that hurt them? Do you just rush to excuses? The cadence of somebody's life who's not following God is to constantly justify themselves, to defend themselves, because it's their only hope, is that I need to come out of this thing looking clean or looking good because I have no other person to justify me or to defend me. So I have to defend myself. That is a sign that you're not living for God and allowing him to justify you or to defend you. That's the first sign that Malachi points out. The second thing is here, if you notice, 
this, this idea that you believe that you deserve better than what you currently have. Is that kind of the cadence of your heart? Like you kind of deep down feel like things should be going better for you than they are. You feel like you deserve better. And that's like, you, we, we see that here in verse 14. <clears throat> they say, it's vain to serve God, vain. It's, it's meaningless, it's worthless. What's the point of serving God? Why? Because what is the profit of keeping his commands? How is it benefiting me to do any of this? I show up at church, I said the prayer, I did the thing, and I still don't have what I want, God. My life should be better. I'm doing a better job than you're acknowledging. This is a sign that you are not living for God. This is a sign that your primary concern is selfish, that you really are just concerned about what you get out of things, and your, your default is that you feel like God is kind of robbing you. Like he's kind of shortchanging you. You should have a better life now. You're, you kind of feel like you're owed it. And especially if you're in the religious camp where, you, <clears throat> where you're attending, you're going through the motions, you're, you're even joined a connection group. What else does God want from me? <laughs> like, I gave you a Sunday morning and a Tuesday night. What else do you want? <laughs> uh, it's like when the guys come to Jesus and they're like, you know, do we have to pay our taxes? And Jesus says, well, whose face is on the coin? They're like, Caesar's. And Jesus says, well, doesn't give Caesar the coins, and, you know, that's what he wants, then give God to what God wants, and they're like, he's like, all Caesar wants is your money? That's easy. God wants everything. (laughs) Like, which of those two is harder to, all Caesar wants is that coin? Let him have it. That's what he wants? Fine. God wants everything. All of it. He doesn't just want Sunday morning and Tuesday night. He wants everything. And he's owed it. He's owed it. And if your default is that you kind of feel like that God is shortchanging you, that he's being stingy with his blessings because you are deserving better, it's a sign that you may not be living for God. And that kind of life, like we said from the beginning, is leading somewhere. And the last point I want to draw from this first section that Malachi points out is, as a result of all that, you're just, you find yourself disappointed with God and the way that he's handling things in general. Like it's just the cadence of your heart is you kind of feel like God is not really got his, he's not fixed on what's going on around. He's not paying enough attention. Don't, don't you know the way things are supposed to work, God? If I was in control, I think things would be better. And we see that in verse 15, where the people say, we call the arrogant blessed. Like, look at them. Like, they're off just doing whatever they want. And they have the job. They got the promotion. They got the girl. I'm sitting here serving God, and I got jack squat. <laughs> God, you're not doing a good job. I'm disappointed with the way you run things. I I feel like you're not a a good king. Like your kingdom is falling apart and the arrogant are prospering. I don't understand. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and escape. Like these people are just going off and just living godless lives and getting whatever they want. And Malachi is saying, these are signs. If this is your evaluation of the world, you're not living for God. You're living for the world. Your primary concern is what you can get out of this world, not what God does, not what he wants, not how he rewards things. Your basic demeanor is that you don't really trust him with your life. I don't want to live my life according to your standards because I'm not sure I can trust that it's going to work out the way it's supposed to, especially for me. And so the thing we see in this verse, though, is that God notices all of this. He's paying attention. And so we see that in verse 13 where he's the one who comes to them and says, you've been saying some hard things about me. Like, he's listening to the words that they're saying. He's watching their conversations. He's looking how they pay their taxes, how they evaluate their calendars. He's paying attention, and he's looking in on people's lives. 
and he noticed and he's watching. He's, he's aware of what you're doing and how, why you're doing it. And so then he moves on to this next group of people who are living for God, verses 14, or sorry, 16 through 18. <clears throat> it says, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. So there's other people are talking too, not just the people who are living for themselves or living for something other than God. Everybody's talking. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. So he's paying attention to these people too. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. So really, we see just the exact, we had kind of three points on the front end. We see exact parallels on this side, except for they couldn't be more in contrast to each other. Verse 16, those, you see it two, twice, it said those who fear the Lord. You see that twice in the same verse. That's, how, that's the, the way that God characterizes these people. Their basic default is they feared the Lord. And remember uh, Luke's sermon from earlier in Malachi, he really went into that. So if you don't remember that, go back through Malachi and listen to that sermon where Luke pointed out what that was, that idea of fearing the Lord. But for the purposes here, I want to contrast it with the first group who said they're sorry about anything. This group of people repent a lot. They say sorry a lot. Their cadence of life is, I fear God. I fear him. I respect him. I honor him. Whatever he says goes. And because he's God and I'm not, I fall short a lot because I'm not God. Nobody's perfect. We're all human, blah, blah, blah. Nobody's perfect. Whatever the the thing you want to say is, we all know it's true. And so the basic default of these people is they say they're sorry a lot. Because whatever you're most afraid of offending is your God. Like who, who or what are you most afraid of offending? That is the thing you worship. And in these people's case, they are most afraid of offending God because they honor him and they love him. And they're not just afraid because they're afraid of him being angry, which is also true, but they're afraid because they actually love him and you don't want to offend somebody you actually love. You don't want to. You feel bad when that happens. You orient your life around not offending them. I try not to offend my wife, not just because I fear that she'll make me sleep on the couch, but because I love her and I don't want her to be offended by me. Does that make sense? And so these people's life was characterized by confession, repentance. They're not afraid to say sorry because there's nothing riding on it. God is their justifier, and they can say, you're right, I'm wrong. And they can walk in freeness of forgiveness because they don't have to try and look like they have everything all together. And just like we saw the, the first group of people believed that they deserved better than what they were getting, this group of people believe they deserve worse than they currently have. Do you see that in the text? Verse 17, the way that God describes them is he says, I will spare them as a man spares his son. These people recognize that they are a spared people. (laughs) They're spared. They they don't deserve the good that they're getting. They They deserve worse, but they've been spared. Their default, the way they see themselves is that they are set apart as being spared or saved And to be saved means you're saved from something. And so that's the default of this camp of people. If you want to orient your life around living for God, live in a way that recognizes you deserve worse than you're currently getting and God is gracious and everything you have is a gift from him and be grateful and content with what he's currently given you. And then the last thing 
we see in verse 16, they esteemed his name. And rather than believing that God has his hand off the wheel and things are going out of control, you trust that God knows what he's doing, whatever that means for you. If I have less, I'd rather have less and have God. If it means I have harder life than I would normally have, I'd rather have a harder life and have God along with it because I trust him. And whatever goes along with him, I'm counting it as gain. Whatever comes with having him is worth it. And I trust that he knows what he's doing. That's the default of the person who's living their life for God. You respect him and you trust him with what you're doing. And so God notices these people too. We saw that, right? Verse 16, the Lord paid attention and he heard them. The Lord is hearing these people too. He's paying attention to all of this, what you're living for. He's paying attention. And we remember our big idea is the way that you are living is leading you somewhere. And God wants everybody to know this. In verse 18, it says, you shall see the distinction once more. Verse 18, he wants you to know that there is a distinction. Just like there are two rows here today. If this is a wedding, this would be a bride, this would be a groom. Who are you here for? There's a distinction. There's a separation. And he wants you to know that ahead of time. He's not waiting for eternity and to be like, gotcha. Psych, you thought this was all about something else. <laughs> he's not like some cosmic, like, prankster. Where he's just like up in heaven waiting for you to screw everything up and then surprise you and be like, it's not, it's, not, it's not like a hidden camera show. <laughs> like your whole life is a real life. And it's before him and he sees it all and he wants you to know. He wants to turn the cards over and be like, this is what's at stake. This is what I want. This is where it's all heading. Just so we're all clear. And it's amazing to me like how many people have never heard hell mentioned in a sermon. And I know it's an unpopular thing. And I'm not like excited like, oh, I get to talk about hell this morning. Happy New Year. <laughs> Welcome to hell. <laughs> Welcome to church. We're going to talk about hell. But the Bible talks about it a lot because it's a real place. Jesus talked about it more than anybody. Malachi is going to bring it up because this is all heading somewhere. And there is a distinction both in life and in death. And where the distinction in life is ends in a distinction in death. It it only makes sense. And God wants you to know that ahead of time. And he mentions this in verse 16, if you saw this, a book of remembrance. And so I want to fast forward all the way from Malachi And I want to jump past even 2017. And I want to jump ahead all the way to the very end. Because this book of remembrance is important. And I don't have it up on the screen because it's a lot of verses. But I want you to listen. It's in Revelation chapter 20. And it's just uh, five verses, 11 through 15. But listen to the way that God describes the very end, this book. Then I saw a great white throne and the one who sat on it. The earth and the sky fled from his presence. And no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, great and small. So important, unimportant, prestigious, wealthy, poor, man, woman, child, all of them, standing in front of that throne. And books, plural, were opened. And another book, singular, was also opened. So get the picture, books, books, a book, singular, over here, which is the book of life. The dead were judged by the things written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and the grave gave up the dead that were in them, and they were judged, each one according to what he had done. Death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 
Do you see the distinction? Books. Books that list all the things you've ever done. That's what's in these books. How many books would it take to fill up what you did this morning? Like if you were just trying to journal it. Some of you journalers fill up journals often, and that's just what you happen to be thinking about at the moment. (laughs) Imagine if somebody was cataloging every thought, every word, every deed, everything you didn't do, everything you did do, for better or for worse. I helped an old lady across the street. In book, things I've done. Things I've done. Everything. I I didn't help her across the street. I spit on her (laughs) because I didn't like her. In the book, it's all the same. It's, It's stuff you did. These books list things you did. Over here, a singular book, the book of life. What's in it? Your name. That's it. If you're in this book, it says Stan Hayek. Not Stan Hayek went to church this morning, even though it was really cold. Not Stan Hayek chose not to click on that thing because he loves me. Just Stan Hayek. Stan Hayek didn't choose to click on that stuff. would have been in these books. But since his name is over here in this book, these books don't matter for Stan Hayek. These books don't matter for you if your name is in here. This is the book that matters. Your name is here, and that's all that's in it because it's the Lamb's book of life. And all that matters is that you are in Jesus. You're in this book. That's all that matters in terms of eternity. When you die, this is the only thing that matters. If it's not this, it's this. And it doesn't matter what's in this book, even if your book is mostly good. You're mostly helping old ladies across the street. It's been a long time since you spit on somebody. (laughs) Good for you. Bully for you. Still books. And where were these books? Where did they end up? Thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death. So everybody will be resurrected and judged. And then there is a separation. There's a distinction. And God wants you to know there's everlasting life, everlasting death. And you will live forever somewhere. The question is not, do we live forever? The question is, where do we live forever? People in Malachi's day are still alive somewhere. And at the resurrection of the dead, they will be judged according to the books or the book. That was clear to them then. That was 500, 400 years before Jesus was ever born. We're 2,000 years after the fact. It's true for us now. And we see here that it's fast forward all the way into the future. That is the standard. Are you in the book? Or are you putting your confidence in books? Whatever it is. All the good things I've done, all the bad things I chose not to do. Is that your confidence? Because those books, he's clearly telling you, do not end up in eternal life. Only those whose name, if anyone's name, Revelation 20, 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So Malachi 4, 1 turns the corner and he wants you to see a picture of this to make it even clearer. And he says, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. Remember what the the guys said? Oh, the arrogant are blessed and the evil get away with it. They don't. That may be your take on things. They look like they're getting gold medals and blue ribbons everywhere. They don't get away with it. It may look like that for now, but they don't. The day is coming that shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Hell is a real place. And yes, scripture makes it sound scary because it is scary. (laughs) So like the guy on the street corner with the cardboard thing isn't wrong about the fact that it's scary, okay? We can talk about his methods and if that's the best way to reach people. (laughs) And it might not be the whole gospel that he's sharing, but he's not wrong if he gives you the impression that hell is a bad place and that you don't want to go there. 
Because the Bible would give you the same take on it. Okay, it's not a good place. Things are on fire a lot. And it's very hot. And whatever scripture says about heaven, it's a metaphor for it. I don't know how it can be complete darkness and on fire at the same time, because fire usually produces light. But the point of it is, is that it's very bad. And it's worse than what you think it is. So if I say, like, this thing tastes like a lemon, it means it's lemon-like. But if I give you an actual lemon, that's more lemon than this thing is, right? An actual lemon tastes more like a lemon than lemon-flavored candy. If hell is like a burning oven, it's not exaggerating. It's less than that. It's worse than a burning oven. It's more hot. It's more intense. It's darker. It's hotter than Scripture can even give words for. Because metaphors fall short. They don't exaggerate in this case. They're actually worse than what they say. And one common distinction I just want to clear before we move on to Malachi's picture of heaven, which is actually really should spur you on. And if you're not living for God, may this... Not just the fear of hell, but the joy of heaven. May it gird you on and be like a carrot and not a stick. You know, a little more carrot, a little less stick. But in this case, hell is a stick saying, stop it. But listen, hell is not the absence of God. Can we just clear that up and stop saying stuff like that? That's not true. There is no place where God isn't. Psalms make it very clear. There's nowhere I can run and be away from you. I can go to heaven. I can go to hell. I can go to the grave. I can go to east, west. But you're there. There is no place where God isn't. Hell is not like the devil's booby prize, where like he got kicked out of heaven. He's like, well, fine, I'll go start my own stupid kingdom then. <laughs> and like we have this weird cartoon image that like Satan's like pouting around hell, but at least he's in charge. <laughs> you know, where he's always the one torturing Hitler, right? You know, <laughs> like it's like Satan is not in charge of hell. He doesn't want to be there either. Can we just clear that up? <laughs> Satan doesn't like hell. He's not happy. He's not like, well, I guess it's better than nothing. (laughs) Like, he's in hell. He's not in charge. God is in charge of hell. And that might shake some of your brains up a little bit, but God is in charge of hell. Hell is simply God without grace. And you have never experienced that. Life here right now is full of grace. The rain falls on the righteous and the wicked. Every day the wicked get to experience life and breath and everything else, as long as they're alive. But in hell, God is there, but grace is not. It is just his wrath. It is just the justice part of him with no compassion left because you ran out, you denied his son who he sent to die for you. And so it's just God with no grace. But that is one motivator, and it should motivate you. If that sounds scary, if the state of your soul tonight is like, I don't know where I would, if I died tonight, what would happen to me? That's a good contemplation. But listen to what Malachi, he wants to really goad you more with the reward of heaven. Verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4. He's like, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from a stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So notice it's, it's those who are healed. Just like we saw they were spared, we see the sun is rising with healing. Why? Because even those going to heaven need to be healed. It's not the healthy people who are going to heaven. Can we clear up that distinction right away too? It's not healthy people who get to go to heaven. Sick people need doctors, and Jesus is a great physician. And sinners need a savior, and he is willing to save those who have sins and confess them. It's the healed people who are going to heaven, not those who never got sick, because that kind of person doesn't exist. There are only sick people, but there's some who seek the doctor and some who choose to self-medicate. 
And I had to have Stan help me out with this whole, like, this should go out leaping like calves from the stall part. Because, like, I grew up in Iowa, but I didn't grow up in that part of Iowa. <laughs> and, uh, um, and typically, like, comparing people, particularly girls, to, like, cows isn't, like, a great <laughs> description. It's like, hey, ladies, I got good news for you. You're going to be like a cow someday. <laughs> you can be like, well, can I, go, can I be skinny in hell? Um, <laughs> Like, no, you're going to be a cow, but you're going to want to be this. Because Stan gave me this picture, and he sent me a YouTube video and everything. I'm not going to show it to you. But the basic idea is these calves are penned up. And it's for their good. It's for their protection. It's for their nourishment. But at the right time, when it's good for them, they are turned loose. And these things, like cows, like I saw these, like, Scandinavian. I don't know, sure, it was Sweden, maybe? I don't know, Denmark. But these cows that were let out were just, like, they're literally bouncing around like puppies, <laughs> which is the most, like adorable slash kind of, if you were there, kind of terrifying, I'm sure. Because it's like a puppy bumping around. It's kind of cute, because if it knocks over a glass of milk, whatever. But a cow could knock over your house. <laughs> and so these things are kind of out of control giddy, but they're just like skipping around. And they're, it's even amazing that they're able to get themselves off the ground, because they're cows, you know? They're not small animals. But heaven is like that. If, if hell is like... If hell is, is God without grace, heaven is like ever-increasing grace. It's just growing and swelling. And it's like that part like in the, in the, in the song where the music is going, you're like, oh man, something's going to happen. It's going to be awesome. I hear Jason on the, on, the, on, the, on the drums. It's like, oh man, oh, here it comes. You know, it's like, boom, and then the cymbal. And then like you, you wait for it. Like heaven is like that forever. And it just keeps getting better and better and better. It's like a sunrise. Did you see that? After a long, dark night. You ever been awake on a long, dark night? I have six kids, so I've been awake a lot. <laughs> and sometimes you're just like, please just get me through to morning, just to morning. But you wait and you see the sunrise. And when's the last time some of you got up and saw the sunrise? It's a healthy thing just to do, especially with this meditation in your mind. It's so dark. And then all of a sudden the sun peeks its head over. And it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And it lightens everything up. And it keeps getting warmer and brighter. That is the picture of heaven. God's Full presence. If, if hell is just an isolated part of his character, like you kind of remove the grace, but it's just this. Heaven is all of him forever, and it's great, and it's good, and it keeps getting better and growing and increasing, just like the sun rising with healing on its wings, like spring after a long winter, and you're just like, oh, warmth. Oh, I can feel it on my arms. I don't have something covering me, you know, where I'm just like, geez, get the air off me. <laughs> but like in the spring, the warmth of the sun that is what heaven will be like. And for the word picture here is like showing cows jumping around, just enjoying and dancing the, the pasture on their hooves. And it just feels good. And it's green and it's soft and it's life and it's forever. And just like them, we may feel like we're penned up. Like you look around and you're like, ah, things aren't the way they're supposed to be. That's an accurate assessment. Things aren't exactly the way they're supposed to be yet. But God is in control. And for those who follow him, it might feel boxed in, and it might, you might feel like, oh, I just want to get out there into the grass. Oh! And that's a great motivation to be itching to get out there and dance around and knowing that it will happen. Look at uh, what John 10 verse 9 says. Jesus said this. I have it up on the screen for you. It says, I am the door. This is Jesus speaking. And if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And he will go in and out and find pasture. Isn't that a beautiful picture? There's a door. There is a door. It's not just an open field. There is a door. There is a way in. And it's through Jesus alone. There is a door. And a door implies fences. 
And fences are good. Fences provide freedom. It tells you where to go and how to play. And he, he turns you loose. And in him, it says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And he'll go in and out and find pasture, just like those cows leaping and dancing around. You look around, and it's like, it's like Adam and Eve in the garden all over again, where you look around and you see a million trees, and all of them are yours, except for one. And it's fine. You're not preoccupied with the one thing you can't have, because everything else is yours. It's freedom. You can dance. You can jump around like a giddy cow, <laughs> which is not something you're probably accustomed to thinking about. But hopefully going forward, you think about happy cows. And fences provide freedom. They give you limits, but it's great. And pastures and principles provide pasture. It gives you land to roam in where you know what's in and what's out. And in Jesus, you will be saved and you'll find pasture, just like it says in Malachi that those cows find that freedom. And this is really what Malachi wants to point us to as we close. Verses four through six. He wants to point us to this idea of Jesus being the door, the way to freedom, the way to green grass and pasture. And he wants you If you are currently not living for God, he wants you. The reason he warns you is because he wants you to stop. He doesn't just want you to be like, you're going to hell, and I'm happy for it. (laughs) Like, so, just so you know, your life's going to suck, and it's only going to get worse. (laughs) Like, his hope is that you would stop. Stop this craziness and worship God. Live for him. Don't just come to church. Live for God. Don't just go to connection group. Live for God. Live for him. Orient your life and livelihood going forward into 2018 around him. And it says in verse four through six, we'll finish out. This is the last words that God would ever say in the Old Testament canon. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Oreb and for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction." He wants to point us to the law and the gospel. He wants to point you to, remember, I have not been unclear about how I want you to live, but know for a fact that I am coming and I am sending one who will change everything. He will change hearts, something that you can't do. He will come, and who's the one acting in all this? I will send, he will turn, I will come. All of it is God being the doer. Your job is to remember, God has not been unclear about what he wants from you in the meantime. How you are living is leading you somewhere. He wants you to know that, and he wants you to know that in Jesus, it ends in heaven. It ends in the hearts of children being turned towards their fathers and fathers towards their children, which seems kind of like a weird thing to say right at the end of your book. But when we think about the love of God is a love of a father for a son. The heart of all love begins with a father and a son. The Father, God Almighty, sent his Son, Jesus Christ, to earth. The love of a father was meant to change everything. And when God comes, he will change hearts. People will change. They'll be like, I want to live for God. Not just, I'll come to church because I feel like God will be mad at me if he doesn't. He'll change hearts so that you want to live for him. Not just have to, but get to. I want to. God will change hearts. Because of Jesus, there is a book, and not just books. If it weren't for him, this was all we would have. And there is no confidence in books. There's confidence in his book alone. And the way we're living is leading us somewhere. And may we put our life and livelihood in Jesus and live that way. The way we respond to our sermons here is through communion. And uh, I have a verse up here on the screen that will capture this essence as we um, transition into that. There's gluten-free over here. 
you'll take a piece off and dip it in the cup and take it once the band starts playing. But let's look at Hebrews 9, 27, 28. I feel like some of you know somebody who's supposed to be here today or they're gone. Or... And so I would encourage you to take the principles from this and go share it with them. You can share the link to the message, that's fine, but like share this with them and take this idea with you. It says, just as it is appointed for, one, for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Is that how you would characterize your heart this morning? Are you eagerly waiting for Jesus? Is that the word you would use, is eager? Like, are you, would you be happy if you got to throw away those 2018 glasses? Would that make you excited? Like, he's back, yes! I'm so happy, it's all I've been living for, and he's finally here. Or would it be like, dang it, I'm never going to get married. <laughs> dang it, all those grandkids I wanted. <laughs> Thanks, Jesus, for ruining my day. <laughs> is that, would that characterize your heart? Believer, reorient your life around what God has said. Those of you who know you're not living for God, consider the outcome of what you're living. It is all heading somewhere. And he hasn't been unclear about how to get to where you want to go. <laughs> where you want to end up. And so as we take communion, remember, he is coming back. The verse is said, he's coming a second time. He came once to deal with sin, died on a cross. He's coming back to judge the living and the dead. And this table, at his last supper, he said, I'm so happy to eat this meal with you because I'm not going to eat it again until I eat it again in the kingdom. I am coming back, and Jesus will have this meal with us. We won't be feasting on bread and wine. We will feast on him and his presence. He is coming back. And so as you approach the table, Confess your sin. Say you're sorry. Just agree with God. Admit that you deserve worse than what you currently have and be grateful for what you do have. And choose to orient your life around what he's clearly said to do. Put your hope in what Jesus has already done. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the clarity it provides. Thank you that it gives us instruction and comfort. If it was just instruction, I'd be devastated by it. If it was just a book of rules saying, here's what to do, it would be bad news because I know I'm not keeping these. I haven't kept them all. I try my best. Some days I try harder than others. Some days I could honestly say I didn't try that hard. But even on the days where I try my hardest, I seem to fall short and that's so frustrating. Um, So I thank you for hearts that want to do your word, want to do your will. I pray that godly grief would produce repentance and that for those who've never considered the way that their lives are going and where it's heading, that the clarity of this message would produce, like Amazing Grace says, it would produce fear. And that grace would relieve those fears. It wouldn't just make fearful people who are scared to go to sleep tonight, but it would make people who turn their lives to you, who go to bed in confidence, resting their eyes, knowing that they've put their trust in Jesus. And in his book, there is eternal life. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.